from the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities. This is Backstory with the American History Guys. Peter, Ed, you know Valentine's Day is coming up. Really? Good, good, good. Well, I I remember this when I went shopping in the market, and those bags Mm. of pastel-colored hearts are—they're appearing. You know, they say, be mine on them. Mm. Only now, of course, they say, text me. (laughs) (laughs) That got me thinking about my days back in Cambridge, Massachusetts. One of my favorite memories was walking down the street and smelling the aroma of those little hearts being manufactured at the local candy factory. I always wondered where they came from. <laughs> no, exactly. I learned later that that factory had been turning out hearts yeah. for 100 years. So I wanted to find out a little bit more about where all this came from, and I put a call into this guy. I'm Steve Allman, the author of the book Candy Freak and registered Candy Freak. This is a guy who is obsessed with candy. He claims that he has eaten a candy bar every day of his life. A little over 10 years ago, Steve managed to get a tour inside the very factory in Cambridge that I used to walk by, Ah. the Necco factory. The thing is, once you step inside a candy factory, if you are a candy freak like me, somebody who is really deeply, sadly obsessed with candy... It's like you've reached home. You've reached your spiritual home. And the only thing I could think was, I need to get back into more of these factories. I need to spend more of my time in these places, talking to people whose job it is to make candy. Steve did get into those factories. He traveled around the country, and he talked to the makers of, you know, what you'd call throwback candy bars, Twin Bings, Star Bars. Goo Goo Clusters. Ah, Goo Goo Clusters, Chattanooga, Tennessee. You can still get them today. <laughs> only They're you great. Would, only you would know that, Ed. They're well, good. All of these, including Goo Goo Clusters, were holdouts from an era that Steve calls the golden age of candy. Those were the years between the two world wars. And there were something like 6,000 candy companies in existence wow. at that time. This was a time, he says, when what I experienced in Cambridge was really a standard part of life for many Americans. In Boston, there were five chocolate factories in the North End, and when the winds were blowing to the north, the entire North Shore and North Boston suburbs would just be awash in this amazing, mesmerizing smell of chocolate. Well, I'm Brian Ballow, and I'm here with Ed Ayers. Hey, Brian. And Peter Onuf is with us. That's me. Today on the show, we're marking Valentine's Day with an hour that explores the history of America's sweet tooth. We've got stories about the dark underbelly of sugar production and how that system of production shaped U.S. immigration policies. We'll look at how, for many people, sugar substitutes became more addictive than the stuff it was replacing. And we'll consider the profound impacts of sugar in some of its other forms, like molasses and rum. But first, we're going to hear a little more from candy freak Steve Amon. Steve says the interwar period was a sweet spot, so to speak, of candy history. That's because companies had the industrial technology to mass-produce candy. Yet, the mom-and-pop shops hadn't yet been gobbled up by huge conglomerates like Hershey and Nestle. But there was also the fact that sugar itself was seen as a sort of health food. It was really a delivery system for quick energy. And that's why Steve Amon calls candy bars America's first fast food. 
the reason they came into being, in fact, was because the soldiers over in World War I, the quartermasters didn't want to have a giant block of chocolate. They wanted a self-serving portion that the troops could carry with them for quick energy. And so the whole essence of the idea of the candy bar was, hey, it's quick and it's portable. You can take it with you. You can eat it while you're working. And the way that candy bars were advertised was as quick energy and, in fact, a replacement for lunch. Hey, you're on the go. It's, you don't have time to sit down and have a whole meal. Have a club sandwich candy bar. Have a chicken dinner. <laughs> I mean, the chicken dinner candy bar actually had a chicken on the label with, you know, like a roasting chicken, like yum. And it's not that it had delicious bits of chicken in the bar, but they were trying to sell very overtly the message, this is your get-up-and-go energy, and there's no downside to it. Now we know, and it's so overt, and we have cholesterol tests, and we know that, you know, obesity is rampant and so forth, so you really have to overcome that knowledge. Back in the 30s and 40s, it was like, this is great. But wasn't there something also pretty honest and transparent about what you were getting? Today, we consume so much sugar, but I, I have a feeling we don't consume most of it through candy bars. My sense is no. we consume it through soft drinks. We consume it through the stewed tomatoes we buy, the yep. bread we buy. Right. Um, yep. there, I don't want to wax nostalgic uh, for the value of a good jolt of sugar, but people knew what they were getting, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, if you compare a candy bar, that's a deal at least you know you're making. When you buy a jar of pasta sauce and you think, oh, my pasta kids, sauce, you know, are getting yeah. vegetables. Or exactly. Ronald Reagan saying, hey, you know, ketchup, it's a vegetable, folks. And you're like, actually, that's just mostly corn syrup. So it's really very much a Trojan horse kind of situation that, that you know, as I'm sure you well know, is sort of going monocrop, producing all this corn, figuring out how to most effectively sell it to people. The whole culture is tilted towards a glycemic index that's kind of insane and ridiculous. I think the best thing to do and the lifestyle that I've tried to lead as my cholesterol has gone out of control and my teeth are falling out of my head and I'm worried about it because I have little kids, the, the way I try to do it is eat lots of fruits and vegetables and beans during the day and then party like a rock star with overt candy products at night but stay away from that. We don't have soda. We don't even have juice in the house. If we're going to do sweet stuff, it's either fruit or it is candy. And most of the time, of course, it's candy. Where does your obsession for candy come from? Well, I can speak, you know, personally, when I looked back and thought about my childhood, almost every powerful memory that I had was associated with chocolate and candy. And the reason for this is, particular to me, I think it was, as I, as I really thought about it, it was the antidepressant, essentially, that I was using. When I really thought about the episodes that came to mind, they were all instances in which I was clinging to candy because of the emptiness in the rest of my life or a sense of loneliness or just being, feeling isolated or frozen out by my brothers, whatever it was. Candy was my antidepressant. So you were self-medicating. Correct. That's exactly what it was. When I look back at it, if I'm honest about it, that's exactly what I was doing. I think what was going on is I just was trying to find a way, a path away from my despair. And candy is pretty dependable. It is never disappointing. Your friends will disappoint you. Your family will disappoint you. Your colleagues, your bosses, your peers will disappoint you, your children. But candy, I've never had an experience where I bit into candy and said, boy, that just wasn't I mean, maybe I've had a few, but it's pretty hard for me to be disappointed by that experience. Steve, I, I do want to 
ask you, having visited these icons of an American past, what, what can you tell our listeners about what you learned from your tour through Candyland? Well, the one thing that bums me out the most about America and being, being in this land of plenty is that people are just insufficiently grateful at the miracle of being alive in this time, in this place. If you had given a Snickers bar to somebody in Mesoamerica or Europe, forget primitive man, just, you know, in pre-Columbian culture, if you had shown them that miraculous little package of really high-quality chocolate and caramel and peanuts and nougat flavorings and all the rest of it, and just allowed them to put that in their mouth, their heads would have exploded with joy, and, and it would have been miraculous. Snickers would be their god that they would pray to. And that thing we can buy for a small percentage of our discretionary income. And so what I've tried to do as I've moved forward, sort of from being candy, to think, well, what is it? Am I enabling people? Am I sort of promoting candy? What I'm really trying to say is be grateful. Get down on your knees and thank God or whoever you need to thank that you are able to live in a place in a time where there is so much unbelievably dependable pleasure that you can get from um, these little miracles, these little creative miracles, whatever piece of candy it is. That is something that... You know, in, in human history, it's one of the few unblemished miracles of, of human progress. Steve, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks for joining us on Backstory today. Absolutely. Great to be with you. That's author Steve Amon speaking to us from his home in Boston. We'll link to an excerpt of his book, Candy Freak, at backstoryradio.org. 